Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 109 of Techspansive. I'm Sean Duberback from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week, we've got uh, a lot of antitrust news to, uh, to go through. Saw some um, new information that's come out of the Epic lawsuit regarding some of the tactics that Google has undertaken to influence that market. Uh, two of those were essentially disclosed through some of the documents this week. They include a premier device program that Google operated, wherein it gave search revenue, a higher share of search revenue, to device manufacturers that were willing to ship devices with, without essentially uh, app stores with APK install privileges. Uh, and we saw another program that they implemented called Project Hug, where they paid out large amount of money to keep game developers in the Play Store. So Apple, excuse me, Google doing what uh, what Google has done in many instances, and, and that's uh, use its tremendous uh, revenue potential to influence these markets, to, to streamline the markets somewhat. Yeah, I, I would say that, uh, so a couple things. First of all, up till now, a lot of the attention has been on uh, Epic's uh, issues with, with Apple, right, where there is a law set down that uh, no one else can launch an app store uh, on, on an iOS device, whereas, uh, as I've said before on the podcast, there have been uh, other app stores for, uh, for Android devices uh, from, from Amazon uh, and other providers. You don't even have to install uh, an app store. You can just, uh, there are several web-based ones. Uh, and so I always thought that that provided a, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more to bolster uh, Google's case that it has not been uh, qu as much of a monopolist uh, in in Android as uh, as Apple has been in in iOS. Uh, and I would say these revelations are are interesting, uh, and they show that uh, Google has fought uh, to keep App Store primacy on uh, on Android, but I wouldn't necessarily say that they indicate anything uh, illegal or, or underhanded. They seem like fairly straightforward incentive programs. Uh, and, uh, you know, of course, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I may be talking a bit out of turn here, but they, they certainly don't seem, uh, you know, like anything uh, very radical or that, you know, that we haven't seen from, from other kinds of providers in the past. Another interesting tidbit that came out of these documents is that According to a study that uh, Google did a couple of years ago, back in 2017, and I would uh, I, I would uh, hazard a guess that the the numbers have even come down since then. Uh, that uh, only less than five percent of apps installed uh, on Android devices have come from sources uh, other than the Google Play Store. So. Even though Google has allowed this in theory, uh, it happens very rarely in practice. Uh, and so I would imagine that as Epic and perhaps regulators seek to find a way to remedy uh, 
uh, or or change the uh, the primacy or, or open up for more competition on on Android, uh, that uh, that would be one of the guideposts that they would they would look at whether the actual share of uh, uh, of Android apps installed had increased significantly from that number. Because while it's always been technically possible, uh, it's always been somewhat of a of a hidden feature, uh, and uh, there would certainly be a lot more that could be done in terms of discovery uh, for for Google's to for uh, for consumers to find alternatives to to Google's uh, store. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what we find in lots of instances that most people go with the defaults, right? We we talked about that in a past episode where you look at uh, some of the ad security features that Apple implemented in iOS. Uh, around not tracking and and most people are when given the choice opting not to be tracked whereas in the past that was the the default was to be tracked or allow the app to decide what information was was captured and so uh, we see users going kind of the the least complicated way in most instances going with the uh, the default um, I think the the antitrust argument here is did Google exert undue influence on that market and, and, and stymie competition. I mean, uh, your argument there that, uh, according to an Epic, you know, used it according to Google's a re- Google report from 2007, that most people are using the, the Google play store anyway. So m- maybe it, it, uh, you know, helped on the margin, but maybe it wasn't that big of, of an influence. Um, and I, I think, you know, when you look at Project Hug, this program to pay out uh, developers to keep their games on the, the App Store, that hasn't been an uncommon practice. Microsoft has has uh, tried that in different places to keep developers active in their space and, and arguably should have done more when they had Nokia uh, for the, the Windows Phone, should have really uh, exerted much more influence and effort there. They They did pay developers, I believe, at that time to to help develop that ecosystem out at a time when there was a lot of app development. And so uh, resources were constrained. Uh, in, in some ways, unsurprising that, uh, that Google has you know, used, uh, used finance to help influence these markets. And we'll see how the, uh, the courts look at that. And it's been kind of the engine of competition on the in the console world, you know, for many years. This this idea of exclusives, uh, and uh, you know, it, it has um, you know helped. Uh, I, I think in some cases, you know, caused uh, or influenced consumers to buy multiple game consoles uh, because they uh, they want to access the the exclusives. You know, sometimes it comes. I think in the forms of uh, payments to third parties, and sometimes it comes in the form of just buying the studio. Uh, and we've seen lots of both in in the past uh, decade in in the console sphere. So this just seems like an extension of that to me. Yeah, and their their uh, statement to the Verge, they noted that quote Google Play competes with other app stores on Android devices and on rival operating systems for developer attention and business. So, uh, so they kind of set there early on that uh, that they're competing against other app stores, and so they need to keep games uh, on Google Play in order 
for it to be a viable app store. And, uh, you know, they continuing that quote have long had programs in place that support best in class developers with enhanced resources and investments to help them reach more customers across Google play. So, uh, I don't anticipate Google really changing these tactics. They've uh, use these approaches in many markets. We talked about uh, what they're doing with uh, Google or with uh, YouTube shorts to help build out that market. So this is, is definitely a, an approach that Google likes to employ. Uh, in, in other antitrust news, Facebook always in the, the light, if you will, the spotlight for uh, antitrust concerns. The FTC has filed a revised antitrust suit against Facebook, claiming that it is a monopoly in U.S. personal social networking services. So, you know, what, what's interesting here, and I think we've talked a, a lot about this uh, in the podcast, is that you've got these, in some ways, antiquated antitrust rules and regulations. And uh, one of the, the key aspects of that is you first define the market. So once you define the market, then you can start to look at market power and market influence within that market. And so... Uh, we see the FTC really using the the, uh, the antitrust rules that are in place as opposed to trying to devise new antitrust rules and regulations. They're using these uh, kind of existing rules that are in place. They're defining the market as U.S. personal social networking services, and they're arguing that, um, that Microsoft has a monopoly and, and really has no competitors. They distinguish it from TikTok because of the, the social networking features they argue that um, you know, really, they they only have um, Snapchat as an existing competitor, though other competitors have have come and gone. Companies like uh, Google Plus or or MySpace have have come and gone, but um, Facebook is uh, almost alone in the uh, the market for social networking, and that it has used that influence uh, in in that market. So. Yeah, this uh, this struck me as kind of a, a narrowing of the category that uh, the FTC is trying to define uh, for Facebook. Uh, apparently, there was a lot of data added to the amended brief, uh, much if not all of which uh, has been redacted. So it's difficult to see what uh, what the government is uh, is adding to the case. Uh, you know, I, I'm. I don't know if this really strengthens their argument much. Um, you know, you still are, I, I don't even, I haven't seen the definition of what was it, Sean, a, a personal social yeah. service. A pers- U S personal social networking services, U S um, personal social networking services. You know, I would argue that that, uh, would include Twitter, you know, certainly, uh, and, um, you know, there are, uh, uh, connections made on, on all kinds of, of groups. Uh, you know, I, I led a, a small ensemble, uh, before the pandemic, we used a website called band, uh, which is used a lot with sports teams. Um, you know, it was very, uh, very, you know, very competent software, uh, Slack, uh, teams, uh, uh, what else? Um, Mighty Networks is another startup that I've I've seen in that space. So, 
yes, none of them have really risen to challenge uh, Facebook on a, on a visceral level, but, uh, uh, but you know, there are certainly a, a lot of alternatives out there depending on what, what you're looking to do on the network. I mean, certainly a lot of personal stuff happens on LinkedIn also. Well, and the FTC excludes both Twitter and Reddit mm. because while these companies allow you to share information among communities with specific interests, they don't allow you to connect and they don't at least focus on connecting you with friends and family. So that's their definition of of social networks is that you connect with friends and family. They also differentiate it from TikTok, which they view as a broadcast platform, broadcasting content as a as opposed to explicitly social space. So they've had to really define the market in a very specific way uh, that looks a lot like Facebook and doesn't look like anyone else. And then they've <laughs> argued that Facebook is uh, essentially the only one in that space with the, the addition of Snapchat chat they snapchat would yeah. probably fall within that definition of, i mean uh, I, I i can kind of see the argument that tiktok would not be included in that uh definition but it's far harder for me to uh to see how instagram then uh is is part of that definition i mean those two uh services are are clearly competitors you know and as we've discussed on the podcast in the past uh are becoming increasingly uh, more uh, more competitive. So, uh, so I, I guess I you know I, I, I get the focus. I, I kind of understand the definition a lot better now. You know that you've explained it, but uh, but I, I still think it's uh, it looks like a, a challenging case to make. Well, and I think the other big question is how contestable is the market. So if TikTok mm-hmm. were to suddenly add in the ability or, or if they were to change their focus to focus in on connecting friends and family and allowing you to communicate directly with friends and family in a, a messenger type you know, platform that they added to the service, how hard would that be for them to do? Probably not very hard, right? The, the technical hurdle is, is pretty low. Uh, would users take advantage of that service? You know, maybe, but and then all of a sudden they've entered the market, and what type of market share could they garner uh, early on? So, um, what about iMessage? You know, what what about you know Facebook has in the past referred to Apple's messaging as one of its biggest competitors, which which I think is a valid argument. So, it certainly allows you to connect with friends and family. So, yeah, people people do it every day. I, I don't know. But, yeah. But so more more will come out of this, but I think uh, we do get a glimpse into um, the way the FTC and, and ultimately the DOJ have to approach these type of cases in, in using the the law as it as it currently stands. And uh, I think if we really want to see things change here. You're going to need congressional action to change sure. what antitrust looks like. Uh, the, these type of narrow definitions work, I think better for physical markets that are much more difficult to enter and exit. Uh, but uh, it, it's hard to imagine that um, you can narrowly define a market that looks a lot like Facebook and then turn around and say they have monopoly power of that market. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's interesting in their in their filing as well, the FTC argued that 
all of the success that Facebook had after the Cambridge Analytica debacle highlights their market power, that they were able essentially to overcome all of the, the negative uh, feedback and, and the negative press that they received mm. from that event shows that they have uh, market power, that they were able to weather that without significant user engagement loss. So uh, we'll see what what comes of this. Uh, Facebook has until the beginning of October to respond, and uh, I'm sure we will see a, a, a good, strong response from them. And it'll be interesting to see how they characterize themselves and the market for uh, social networking services in the U.S. And uh, speaking of how Facebook characterizes itself, uh, recently Mark Zuckerberg has been talking about the future of the service as more of a metaverse company uh, as opposed to a social networking service or however the FTC chooses to define us uh, kind of kind of service. Uh, and of course, this is tied to their VR and AR efforts uh, through uh, primarily uh, Oculus. And this week, uh, Facebook showed a preview of a service called Horizon, uh, which is kind of a future collaboration, uh, virtual conference room kind of uh, scenario. Uh, we've seen a number of these uh, kinds of uh, collaborative spaces in VR and AR uh, over the years. I've met with a company called uh, Spatial uh, a number of times. Uh, they're based here in New York. Very cool experience, uh, you know, particularly when you try it for the first time. Uh, I'm not sure how it, uh, you know, how how it how it uh, what the experience is like if you're committing to do it for, use it for a series of meetings over an extended period of time that, that may be a, a different kind of um, uh, feeling. Uh, but, uh, but, but certainly in terms of bridging uh, people in, in remote locations, uh, a future that seems to, uh, to be one that will survive uh, even, even as people start returning from the, uh, from the, pandemic uh, remote work scenarios, uh, you know, this is this has really been one of the most natural kinds of applications. Interestingly enough, in, in terms of where the market is today, uh, in speaking to a number of companies in the in the VR space, particularly in the enterprise space, uh, this really has not been the leading uh, kind of application for VR and AR. Uh, a lot of that is because even though it would seem to be a very broad, horizontal kind of application, the expenditure required, particularly for augmented reality these days, is such that uh, you can only really justify it when the ROI case is a lot clearer. Uh, and so while you can make a case that VR meetings save uh, money and time in terms of uh, allowing different parties not to have to travel uh, in order in order to meet. It's really not the same kind of ROI as enabling uh, a factory, you know, repair technician uh, to to complete a repair on on a machine uh, where the downtime, you know, could be costing hundreds of thousands of dollars every minute. Um, so uh, so that's what's leading today. But I, I would argue that that's largely a function of, uh, of, of where the market is. And uh, 
in terms of the future, as these um, as the the price of these uh, products comes down, certainly something that uh, Facebook has been driving. Uh, then then these VR types of experiences uh, for for uh, collaboration become uh, a, a lot more viable. Uh, I also think it's kind of interesting that one of the potential benefits of Facebook transitioning to a metaverse kind of uh, company is that it allows them, and this is clear proof of it, more access into the commercial world. You know, today, having such an association with consumer data and consumer services, I mean, they, they have uh, a product called At Workplace, uh, you know, which is basically Facebook for, for, you know, private label Facebook for companies. Uh, but, you know, they, they've really struggled getting mindshare there uh, because of, uh, of, of their privacy reputation. Uh, you know, we've we've also seen this with some of their competitors. You know, Google throwing a lot more now behind uh, Workspace, their office suite, uh, and uh, trying to make that a lot more palatable for for enterprises. So, so one of the things Facebook would get out of uh, moving toward these kinds of uh, the, these kinds of experiences uh, is to not only throw off uh, a lot of their historical uh, historical privacy uh, issues, uh, but to gain access to, to new markets. Yeah, Ross, I think you're exactly right. I think that uh, you do see this as an, as an ability for Facebook to enter into new markets, not only the enterprise market, but I think you could see them enter into other markets like retail, where they have I think tried to go definitely marketplace is a is a you know retail e-commerce transaction uh, play that they, that they've uh, I arguably been successful at, but this would allow them to go even further. And you can imagine a, a virtual storefront that you go into with your friends. If you think about like the maps that they have in Snapchat, where you can see where all your connections are and where your friends are and see if they're nearby, you can imagine that same type of environment in a, a virtual mall where you're you're moving in. I, I like the use of avatars. I think this helps overcome some of the Zoom fatigue that people are feeling, where they feel like they have to maintain eye contact, even though they're uh, two-dimensional objects. So I think with uh, avatars, we're much more comfortable not following some of the social norms that have developed over centuries that exist for when we're in person. I also think the coming generation is extremely comfortable with avatars, using avatars, being avatars, interacting with avatars, whether they're playing Minecraft or playing other video games, they're very comfortable in that uh, that space. So um, I think it's a really interesting opportunity. We, we saw this week that Apple has, uh, at least according to an internal memo, uh, delayed its uh, return to office until at least January. So with the, the rise of, of COVID cases, many are, are halting their return to office timeline. That'll give us more time to, uh, to interact in the uh, you know, virtual hybrid environment that, that we've been interacting in over the last 18 months or so. And I think uh, you know, for a lot of people, we realize that it, it doesn't work perfectly. It's not the, the optimal use case scenario to do everything as Zoom. And yet we feel like when we're 
are having meetings, we should be able to see each other. We should be able to try to read body language. So I think the avatar is a really interesting approach to uh, allowing you to read some of that body language and, and the VR setup does do, uh, you know, uh, tracking your hands and other things like that. And so you can, can get some of that body language, but we don't have the, that strict rigid, uh, so, you know, social norms that, that uh, again, that we have in the physical space that we're trying to incorporate into a digital environment. So I think there's a lot of really interesting opportunities here. And it's clear this is where uh, Facebook uh, wants to go. I mean, we, we've talked about it a lot that uh, they've made big commitments here. And this is just a, a, another glimpse. It's still very clear that it's beta. Uh, <laughs> and, and from the uh, everything that we've seen and read, it looks like it will take some time for those uh, bugs to be worked out, but uh, it does give us a glimpse of where they want to take us. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point, Sean. Uh, you know, certainly while I brought up the uh, th- this as a contrast to Facebook's uh, current business, uh, you know, would be Facebook would be foolish to ignore their greatest asset, which is the 2 billion, you know, people that they currently have on the service. Uh, and uh, certainly leveraging those uh, relationships uh, to move into new applications is in some ways very much <clears throat> keeping in line uh, with uh, one of the trends we've uh, long discussed on the podcast, uh, which is uh, Facebook just trying to move into new applications. And you could argue that they've kind of reached the, or at least some of the limits uh, that they can do there in kind of a, a two-dimensional or even video-centric uh, world. So uh, we can think of this as an enabler. Uh, another good point you bring up is the attention to detail in the avatar and how that matters. And uh, I brought up spatial before. In spatial today, you know, you're you're basically kind of a, a photorealistic floating head. Uh, and there really isn't a lot of uh, focus on the other elements of, of your body, uh, whereas, as you note, and, and we saw more of this uh, uh, during the Microsoft Mesh presentation uh, a few months back, uh, there's focus on things like the movement of your fingers, and these present uh, social cues uh, that we're, we're used to in video. So, uh, and, and, and will likely be important in driving the acceptance of uh, meetings in VR. And uh, in in somewhat related news, Tesla and Elon Musk have uh, announced that they are working on a humanoid robot that will handle mundane tasks, boring tasks, maybe dangerous tasks. Uh, They announced it this week as part of their uh, AI day. And you can read more about that on their website. Uh, they're calling it the uh, this Tesla bot. The internal name for it is Optimus. Made me think of Optimus Prime, of sure. course. Uh, Who is and, a very yeah. dangerous robot. Very uh, dangerous, but add. a friendly robot. <laughs> a very and, friendly. And he's, on, Musk, he's on the good side, yeah. Elon Musk did say during the uh, AI Day event that it was intended to be friendly. So let's hope that they are able to... Uh, to deliver that intent. Um, it's designed to be uh, mechanical and uh, about 5'8", 125 pounds. 
Uh, Elon also noted you can, quote, run away from it and most likely overpower it, uh, close quote. So the uh, most likely or hopefully uh, overpower it, it's always that terms that, that worry me just a little bit. And of course, Elon has been a, uh, a um, loud critic of, of uh, AI or at least a, a warning critic of uh you know, AI taking over, running, running away. And, and here they are adding to this by potentially building a humanoid. So they plan to launch a prototype sometime next year. We'll, we'll see how that comes to fruition. Obviously they've, uh, they've done a lot of automation in some of their factories, also in, in some of their vehicles. So, uh, they'll build off of that expertise to try to bring a humanoid robot to market, uh, with a prototype coming sometime next year. And so uh, how long is it before uh, people develop avatars for their robots uh, so that they really never have to be uh, in, in a meeting again? Uh, you know, think things that are difficult or boring uh, could, be, could be applied to a lot more than household chores uh, in, in some cases. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, this is, I, I think, uh, you know, another one of uh, the, the tech holy grails, right? A... Uh, uh, a humanoid robot. Uh, I always my go-to is always Rosie uh, from the Jetsons. Uh, hopefully, not not quite as uh, <clears throat> clinically depressed uh, as uh, as she was, uh, but um, but you know very helpful and uh, and very friendly uh, and very very useful uh, around the home. So uh, I think there could be you know Sean to your to your point about uh, hopefully outrun it. <clears throat> um, I'm, I'm sure that would be the case for, uh, you know, the, the vast majority of, of people. And yet you think that one of perhaps the earliest potential applications for this kind of thing with, with a huge grain of salt uh, worked in for its capabilities uh, is as a, you know, domestic helper for people who might be, uh, have mobility issues, um, you know, and, and so, even if they uh, could outrun it, or even if they're in, uh, you know, wheelchair, uh, move more quickly than than this thing, you know, there's always the concern. Well, what if it tips over, you know, and, and falls on them? You know, 125 pounds—that's not nothing. Uh, so, um, but but you know, it's very exciting. Um, Musk, of course, has a long history of uh, detailing things in the works that either. Uh, arrive far short of the uh, the promised uh, capabilities, or just never show up at all. Uh, and so, uh, you know, while while this certainly sounds exciting, uh, we'll have to see how much uh, how much progress uh, is made. But to your point about AI, uh, uh, an intentional uh, effort on their part, uh, not not to try to make it too intelligent uh, and and uh, and but but by the same token, you know, there has to be some degree of 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 its ability to learn there if it's going to be useful for things like I don't know, you know, retrieving pills from a cabinet or or food from a refrigerator or washing dishes in a sink, you know, uh, much less anything far more sophisticated like cooking. Um, so <clears throat> uh, clearly, a a line that has to be drawn. And Samsung at CES this year showed robots that are designed to be used in the office or around the home. And one of the use case scenarios they they highlighted was the robot 
uh, I believe they call homebot, doing dishes, setting the table, pouring you a glass of wine. So those type of, uh, of services, if we can do them, uh, could be really useful. To, to your point, though, it is difficult that the mechanical requirements, if it really is a human bot with, uh, with legs like a human, uh, that is an extremely difficult mechanical operation. Uh, more likely it will probably have wheels or, or something like that. So it, it's not um, walking like a human. And then that limits, of course, its ability to uh, potentially go upstairs right. or to go, go in other places. Um, but if you look at, at the robots we're building, they often have wider bases to avoid tipping over. And so that's going to limit its ability in, in certain things. And then again, to your point, being able to learn, I mean, that, uh, to build a humanoid successfully, it isn't just a mechanical over uh, a number of mechanical things you have to do, but the software is also complex and, and you're going to have to adapt to a dynamic environment. Um, but we have over the last 50 years automated a lot of our, our home. If you think about dishwashers, you think about, uh, refrigerators, ice makers, all of these things, that uh, were, were once not available to us all, at all, and then were available to us uh, through a central service, became localized, miniaturized when we brought them into the home. And so there are a lot of things that we have automated washing machines, dryers, of course, all of those things. So then maybe the next step is cleaning those baseboards or dusting the, you know, the corners in your room. So I, I like that. Well, and, and, and then, you know, the question becomes, uh, at what premium over Roomba, you know, will it be able to do that? Of course, uh, Tesla's uh, first vehicle uh, was, uh, I believe, $100,000, the first uh, Tesla Roadster. So, uh, and that thing really didn't have uh, much in, in the way of, of software engineering. You know, I, I spoke to a, a company a few months ago that does kind of therapeutic uh, exoskeletons. You know, so these are kind of like scaled down robotic limbs uh, that are just designed to help people who, uh, you know, are experiencing a loss of mobility, uh, you know, that's not about giving you superpowers, you know, it's just trying to help people get through their day. Uh, and an incredible amount of software engineering going into that uh, just to anticipate and adapt uh, to to how humans move. So, uh, so much uh, certainly left to be revealed uh, about this, but uh, certainly uh, with the potential to be, you know, the dawn uh, of, of a new era uh, in, uh, in consumer robotics. And if they follow Tesla's approach, inevitably you will be able to put down a minimal deposit of $100 and, <laughs> and queue up for the service to, to one day buy it. So we will uh, hopefully see more of that in the months to come and a prototype next year. Uh, we'll end it there for this week's episode of Techspansive. Thanks for joining. I am uh, Sean Duberback, and you can find me on Twitter at Sean Duberback. And I'm Ross Rubin, or am I? And you can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks so much for listening.